Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you so much for welcoming me. You may be seated. I am so encouraged by all we've already had a part of. Uh, think of missing bow season tomorrow. I told Dr. Getch in the back, I was conflicted whether I was going to, uh, my flight gets in at 1030 this night, uh, tonight back home. And so I was, I'm debating whether to basically just land in Dallas, Fort Worth and just drive two hours to a place that I can hunt or drive an hour tomorrow, probably at 3 a.m. to go hunt somewhere. And then I said, but on the table is going soul winning instead. And so I might just do that and wait till Monday for my season to start. But I'm not entirely sure what we'll do. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm excited to be here. It's truly a privilege and an honor and joy to be here. Thank you for the invitation, Dr. Getch. And, and uh, it, I'm so unworthy and so humbled to be here, but I, I praise the Lord for the opportunity. Uh, I was, went to supper last night with uh, Brother Weaver, Miss Weaver. I had a great supper at uh, Marie Callender's. I ordered the beef stroganoff. And uh, you say, why would you do that? I didn't want to be the guy that comes in and orders a steak. That's why I did that. Uh, and so I ordered the beef stroganoff and uh, had, I ate about half of it, boxed up the rest. We're coming home from the meal. I said, hey, Brother Weaver, there's a Rite Aid there. Can we stop in at the Rite Aid? I'd love to get some Tylenol and I want to get some gifts for some students we have here. And, and he said, that'd be great. I looked down and my box is leaking. And I, I see it's got a couple drops of stroganoff juice on it, whatever that is. And, uh, and so I get a napkin, I wipe it up, and I said, oh, I'm so sorry, Brother Weaver. I think I might have got a little bit on your dash here. I'm so sorry. Two, two little drops up there. And, and he said, that's all right, Brother Andrew. This car needed to be cleaned anyway. I said, okay, Brother Weaver, that's great. Thank you for, for being that way. I get up from my seat, I look down, and literally all of the juice is on my lap and on his seat, completely covered. I mean, I baptizo that seat in stroganoff juice last night. And I said, Brother Weaver, I'm so, so sorry. He was very gracious about it. I appreciate that, Brother Weaver. I told him I think they're charging a lot of money for stroganoff air fresheners, so I just pretty much saved him that purchase. Uh, but man, I made an absolute mess. So my only goal today is to make less of a mess in this pulpit than I did in his car, okay? That's, that's my goal. And I'm not sure if I've got any arrows in the quiver this morning, but I'm going to give her my best shot. And uh, if anything comes of it, it is all the Lord and not of me. I can guarantee you of that. Take your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter number 13. The Gospel of John, chapter number 13. I love the book of John. I love the man that is John. I've been doing a study through the disciples called The Maker's Dozen. And it's been incredibly challenging. And I absolutely love the study of John. He's a great man of God. And his book is very unique, uh, different than all the other gospels. But as we come to John chapter 13, we'll begin reading in verse 21. And I really, some folks have you stand. I'll have you stay seated. But, but sometimes that outward symbol doesn't lend any more respect to the Word of God. Now you can stand, you can be seated, but I want you to respect this moment. I want you to understand that everything from this point on gets worse in the sermon. Okay? I was thinking about this the other day. I was, I was preparing to hear a preacher that I love to hear. And by the way, y'all have had some humdingers here lately, haven't you? Man, talk about Brother Gillett. Brother Gillett pastors a church 20 minutes from me. Uh, I had a young man come to TCU the other day. He's on a full ride scholarship to play uh, piano at TCU. He's looking at my church and Brother Gillett's church. And I was like, you know what? I would just go there. I would just, 
I would just go there. Brother Gillett's one of my favorite preachers in the world. You had Brother Paulie last week. Good gracious, I feel like a, a mule running in the Kentucky Derby up here, Brother Gatch. This is unbelievable. Um, but nonetheless, I was thinking about this as, as, as a preacher I really enjoy was reading the scripture and I said to myself, this is the most important moment of this message. Now everything beyond this is good too, but those are the words of man. This is the word of God. So whether you stand, whether you stay seated today, this is incredibly important that you would give it the credence it is due. John chapter 13, verse number 21 the Bible says, when Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus's bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, He it is, to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought because Judas had the bag that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we have need of against the feast or that he should give, uh, give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out and it was night. Now I would imagine that every person in this room desires to be close to God. And, and of course, biblically, we understand that that's a possibility as however out of sight and however far out that may seem that we would actually have the privilege to draw near to God. The Bible clearly says in the book of James, draw nigh unto God and he will draw nigh unto you. The Bible says in Psalm chapter 145, the Lord is nigh unto them that call upon him to all that call upon him in truth. I think of probably the greatest example of closeness to God in, in all the scripture apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. I think of that man, Moses, who uh, certainly embattled and had many failures in his life. But when he comes uh, to the ministry portion of his life, Moses is a man who has an incredibly intimate walk with the Lord. I think of that time when he was called up into the Mount of God and, and you read that passage there in Exodus and you understand that mountain must have looked very imposing and intimidating as the, the storm essentially engulfs the mountain and smoke is upon the mountain and fire is upon the mountain and lightnings and thunderings exist uh, around the mountain. And I think of, of, of Moses being invited into that very intimidating place. I, I think I might have said, Lord, maybe the weather might be better tomorrow. But yet Moses invited to this place with God and Moses goes up to meet with God. In Exodus chapter 33, we find this man again desiring to meet with God in a very personal way. And so what he does is he sets outside the camp a tent of meeting. And anybody, anybody, by the way, isn't that a blessing? Anybody could go to that tent of meeting and meet with the Lord. Many of them chose to stay at their tent doors. And what a shame that is that when we have the opportunity to meet with God, we often never leave the place of comfort that brings us to the place where God would have us meet with him. But Moses nonetheless goes out 
out of the camp and meets with God. And the Bible says when a pillar of cloud would come down upon that place, everybody understood that God was meeting with him. And it was there that the scriptures say that Moses met with God as face to face, as a man speaketh with his friend. Moses was a man who had incredible intimacy with God. And yet, even in that tent, he prays a prayer and says, Lord, show me your glory. You know what he's saying? As much as I know and as close as we are, it's not enough. And that should be the heart of every child of God today, that you would know Christ more tomorrow than you knew him yesterday that you're ever drawing nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was Moses' heart. And of course, because Moses prayed this prayer, God says, Moses, I'll take you to the cleft of the rock and you'll stand there upon that rock and I'll make all my goodness to pass by you. And there Moses got to see the hinder parts of God. And by the way, I do not think it is insignificant that Moses is one of the men, one of the men that got to see the Lord Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. What Moses saw in part in the Old Testament, he saw on full display in the New. He got to see not only the Passover lamb, but he got to see on the Mount of Transfiguration the Lamb of God which came to take away the sins of the world. Moses' prayer fully was answered in the New Testament. Moses saw in part in the Old, but he saw in full in the New that Jesus was the full glory of the Father on full display for all the world to see. Moses was a man who sought God and knew God and was so close to God. And so scripturally, we know being close to God is a possibility. That leads me to ask some questions. What does being close to God look like? You know, the term close is pretty subjective. I mean, what's close to one person may not be close to another. I got to thinking uh, when a girl uses the term, I'm close to being ready to go, that doesn't necessarily mean what I think it means. I don't know if y'all still do this, Dr. Getch, but, but back when I was a student here, we had the red bricks that led outside of the dorms, and, and that was like the no-go zone for the men. They had to stand on this side of the bricks. I'll tell you this, I spent almost as much time courting those bricks as I did my, as, as I did my future wife just out there waiting on her to go to breakfast and go to this event and go to that event. It just means something different when two different people say the word close. I think of uh, the fact that many of you, I saw some dating couples on the campus yesterday and I praise the Lord. I always was perplexed at these fellows that come to college and spend time in their little bachelor groups. Man, you need a wife to go pastor, amen? And, and the ladies say, hey, oh me, I mean, t- come on, get real. I mean, get serious about it. But I'll tell you this. I think the dean of men and the dean of women mean something different when they say you can be this close to her or him than you do. You've heard that old analogy, you know, make sure a Bible can fit between you. The problem is most of you are thinking soul winners, New Testaments when you need to be thinking family Bibles. Okay. Now it's just close. It's a subjective term. So So what is it to be close to God? And the second question I I, I am led to ask is, okay, what effect might this closeness or this nearness with God have on my life? And we'll seek to answer those questions. 
As we come to this passage, of course, we understand this is the upper room. Jesus is teaching his final lessons to these disciples. He spent so long training and mentoring. These men are are the closest men to Jesus in all the world. He's already washed their feet and taught them that great lesson on service. And now an uncomfortable topic comes up in verse number 21. Notice with me what the Bible says in verse 21. The Bible says, when he... Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. I can't imagine being at that supper and how awkward it must have become. There must have been a sense of camaraderie and fellowship over the night, the preparation for the Passover. But all in a moment when Jesus says, one of you is a turncoat. The, the, the excitement of the moment, the the passion of that that foot-washing ceremony there, that must have been really tempered, if you will, from the statement, one of you will betray me. And it's from this awkward scene, and it's from this passage of Scripture that we find three very important truths about being near to the heart of God. I want you to notice in the first place this morning, the practice of nearness. The practice of nearness. Verse 21 tells us that Jesus predicts this betrayal, and I believe in reaction. In response to that, verse number 22 says, Then the disciples looked one another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was one leaning on the bosom, on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Of course, we know this is John, John the beloved disciple. This is John. This is the mechanism he uses to not pronounce himself, to not assume something of himself. He is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Interestingly enough, this is sort of the reaction that a true Christian has uh, 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 when they come into contact with Jesus. They want the world to see him and not them. In fact, if you think about what John the Baptist ministry was all about, he must increase and I must decrease. Did you know in the book of Matthew that he only mentions his name twice in the whole book? Once at his encounter with Jesus, his call to discipleship, and once as uh, he's just listing out the disciples, he essentially writes an autobiography of all the events of his life and never mentions himself because his whole message and story is about Christ. And that's what John's doing here. Right there, this precious picture of John, the humble servant of God, leaning into the bosom of Jesus. But I want you to understand something. This is not John's nature. This is his practice. John's nature is one of the sons of thunder. Jesus gave them that nickname because of their zeal, their their excitement, their, their rush to do. This isn't his nature. John's a fisherman. He's got scars on his hands and calluses on his hands. John is not a very emotional sort of man. He's not the man that wants to give everyone hugs when the fish come over the edge of the boat. He's not that kind of man. He is a man that in his elderly years is exiled to the Isle of Patmos and he lives in damp caves all by himself. You've ever seen that show Survivor Man? John became that one. So he's not just some 
intimate, emotive type of, uh, well, let's all just get around and kumbaya and talk about our feelings. That's not his nature. He's a first century fisherman on the shores of Galilee, a a, a trade that required great effort and, and, and work. This is not just a man that just wants to sit around and grab hands and hold everybody. But yet it became his practice to cherish Jesus that way. And by the way, it must become your practice as well. However you are wired, whatever your tendencies are, it is a blessed thing to spend time in the bosom of Christ. To get alone with Him and adore Him for all that He is. I can think of no greater reward in the ministry than that you might know Jesus more than others may know Him. And this is what John does. John goes to the place that is available for all, but that none other people go. John goes where Peter could have gone. John goes where James could have gone. But John is the only one there, right near to the heart of God. What does this require of John? Well, first of all, it requires great brokenness. Great brokenness. Jesus in this passage is mentioned three different times after the foot washing of this eventual betrayer. He mentions it in verses 10 and 11, verse 18, and now in verse 21. And it seems like it is becoming the forefront of Jesus' mind at this moment that one of his disciples would betray him. And John, being the author of his own gospel, makes an interesting note in verse 21. He says, when Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit. Now, this may or may not kind of get you thinking, but in all the other gospel stories or in all the gospel records of this event, I want you to know that all of them focus on the disciples, And most of them, two of them say they became exceedingly sorrowful as if the author's intent is to show the disciples reaction. And that's important. I'm thankful for the many sort of perspectives that we get as we read the Gospels. But as as Mark and Luke highlight the, the disciples, John focuses on Christ. And what does he say? He says, He was troubled in spirit. Meaning that John took particular note of how much it hurt Jesus that one of the men that he loved and mentored and trained and cared for and prayed for, one of those men would abandon him and turn away. And John does what only he can do. He comes near to Jesus, I believe in one sense, to comfort him. But I also think that John realizes, not knowing exactly who it would be, I think John sees a glimpse of betrayer in himself. You see, that was the standard reaction of all the disciples. Not me! It's not going to be me. You mean you remember Peter, of course, right? He's kind of the leader of the group, but the Bible says all of them agreed with Peter. It's not going to be me. It's not going to be me. Jesus predicted it would be one of them, but it was none of them, they all said. But I think John, as he lays here, he realizes, you know, I see in me, Jesus, a tendency and the occasion for stumbling that might bring me to the place that I would betray you. 
See, this is the nature of our human nature. We are one decision away from catastrophic consequences. One decision. We read these stories of pastors that have fallen. Man, that's just one decision at a time that takes them down a path they ought not go. And you're not so far from that decision process. Bob Jones Sr. used to say this, any sin that any sinner ever committed, every sinner under proper provocation could commit. Meaning you should not view yourself as too far holy to do things like this. And wasn't that the problem of Peter? Not me. I would never do it. And I can't fathom Peter. Peter not only uh, argued with Christ, Peter flat told Christ he was wrong. He said, though all deny you, I will not deny you. Before that cock throws three, uh, crows three times, Peter, you'll have denied me. And, uh, and Peter says, I would die for you, but I'll never deny you. He, he called Jesus a liar. You know what that is in us that says that others may fall, but we won't? Pride. Pride. As I've become closer to cry, uh, become closer to the Lord in my life, you know what I am realizing? Of course, in the early days, I saw my sin nature exposed. I saw my tendencies and the temptations that I struggled with. You know what I'm seeing more and more about myself? And as I speak to peers in my life that are on this same journey of knowing Christ more, you know what I'm, I'm learning? All of us see our pride more today than we've ever seen it. I put it like this to someone the other day. It's, this, it's like my pride is this great rock quarry full of stones of all sizes. And in the early days, I needed great equipment. God had to do magnificent works to empty me of pride. And he had to take large boulders out of my life. But now as I come closer to Christ, I realize that all of those smaller boulders, they're, 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 those smaller rocks, they're many more than the large boulders. And it takes a much more precise work to remove them. God is trying to empty all of us of pride, but we must come to him with a brokenness of spirit. Jesus taught in his Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means that when you come to God, you must realize your bankruptcy before him, that you have nothing to offer, that you come empty and frankly, you come with a debt. Jesus, I am empty of me. The next verse says this, blessed are they that mourn. What are we mourning over? The loss of loved ones, uh, bad situations? No, you're mourning over your brokenness. You're mourning over the state of your sad heart. And so as you come to God, you come to him empty. Realizing that in each one of us, there is always a shade of turning, always an opportunity to fall. What did, what did the psalmist say? He says, as for me, my steps were almost gone. I almost slipped away. Paul said, I keep my body under subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become a castaway. What are they saying? They're saying that in human nature, we all realize this opportunity to be a miserable failure. And so broken we come to Christ, leaning on Him for support. One of my favorite hymns 
is the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And this particular verse speaks to me because I, I see myself in it. The song says this, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, here's my heart, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Would you know this story is told years later. The man that wrote that song boarded a stagecoach and it was there on the stagecoach, a young lady got on the stagecoach humming the song that he had once written. She obviously saw he was affected by the song and so she said, what do you think of the song that I'm humming? He said, madam, I am the poor miserable man that wrote those words and I would give a thousand worlds if I had them so that I could feel what I once felt when I wrote that song. The man that wrote, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, had in fact, at the end of his life, lost all that he had once before. So empty and broken, we come to Christ. But if we're going to be near him in a practice of nearness, we see not only our brokenness, but we see our boldness. The audacity of John here, I think, is particularly notable. One of you disciples will betray me. And John stays right on his chest. I don't know if John knew it was him or not. I just know that John was doing the one thing he thought could keep him from being that one, staying near to Christ. John went where no others would go. He stayed near to Christ. And by the way, in each of us, when we truly acknowledge our brokenness, there's a temptation to not then come to God. Isn't this what Adam and Eve did? Right? In the garden they sin and God comes looking for them, an opportunity to be near to God. And He's calling out for them in the garden. What do they do? They go hide amongst the trees. And this is what Peter did when, when Jesus had just uh, provided a great draught of fishes. He looks at Jesus and he says, depart from me for I am a sinful man. Something deep within us recognizes our total unworthiness of truly drawing near to a holy God. And so we go like recluses into solitary confinement away from the place that God truly wants us to be. Our brokenness ought not repel us from God. It ought to bring us to God for the remedy of our brokenness. See, as we come to Christ, we realize that we have nothing to offer, but he's already offered all that needs to be offered. You see, we have boldness to enter into the throne and room of God. We can draw near to God with a full heart of assurance of faith. Why? Not because we have anything, but because He is everything. And that whatever atonement has been offered on our behalf is sufficient to bring sinful man into the presence of a holy God. Oh, it's nothing that we've done, but it's all that He has done. I got to tell you, though, most times when I go to God, I don't feel bold. I don't feel bold. I feel, frankly, as if it's a bother. Sometimes I feel like I'm unworthy to go before him. Most times. And the Bible says, and of course, you know, this verse in Jeremiah, it says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So here's the battle we all face in terms of our boldness for God. The battle we face is our heart is telling us we're not good enough 
Yet the scriptures constantly reiterate the sufficiency of Christ's atonement and the assurance that we can come to God because he has designed the way in which we can come. And yet our heart says we don't feel like it. And the Bible says, but you have access boldly before God's throne. So here's what I want you to know today. Boldness with God is not a matter of feeling. It is an act of faith. It is an act of faith that says, God, you have designed all the processes so that I can come to you. I could never do it on my own. And I certainly don't feel like it because as I see my sinfulness, that only brings me to a place where I, I don't feel worthy. But God says, come to me. And he's drawing us near to him. Our faith must be like one that goes into the bank of heaven with a, with a check that God himself has signed, lay it on the table and say, today I have boldness with God because God has signed this check. It's not us. And that, that sort of shamefulness, that's good. That brings us to our need for Christ, but it is in our boldness that we see the solution in Christ. Oh, do you have a practice of drawing near to God in your life? Sadly enough, I made it through Bible college, through this Bible college, without genuinely having a regular habitual practice of drawing near to Christ. I mean, it was infrequent, irregular, did my best. But you cannot be all you need to be for God unless you have this time where you draw near to him. You have placed upon your ministry and on your life a capstone of what you're willing to do for God in terms of how near you're willing to draw near to Him. We see not only the practice of drawing near, but we see then the privilege of nearness to God. Verse 24, Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him, that is John, that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. Let me ask you a question. When you think of Peter, do you think of a man that is restrained? Not me. I think of the man who had the great privilege of being on the Mount of Transfiguration, who in that wonderful moment, and if you do a little study on that, that passage throughout the harmony of the Gospels, you realize it seems like they woke up to the events unfolding before them. Almost like they had missed three quarters of the show and they're only catching the tail end of the grand finale. And Moses and Elias are about to take up. They seem to be all departing. And Peter, just wanting the moment to continue, he says, it is good for us to be here. Well, you just kind of got here. But, but it is good for us to be here. Let us dwell a, uh, build a tabernacle, a, a, a place of dwelling. I don't think he's making like worshipful houses. He's just saying, maybe if I make a house for Elijah, he'll stay. Maybe if I make a house for Moses, he'll stay. And Jesus, you can say, because I want this moment to continue. And he says, let us build a tabernacle for Moses and Elias and for you, Jesus. If that'd be good for you. It's like the, the father says, this is my son. Hear ye him. Peter spoke out of turn oftentimes. I mentioned earlier of his argumentation with Jesus. No, I'll never. I will never de deny you, Lord. I don't know about you, but I see a lot of glimpses of myself in Peter. Not in his good times, but in his weak times. Remember years ago, I was preaching for our Spanish church. I have a great congregation, uh, a great Spanish pastor. 
They speak only Spanish in their services. They asked me to preach and I speak no mas Spanish. And so that is a bit of a problem. So we usually arrange for a translator. But I wanted to, you know, relate. And I was preaching from Ephesians chapter 3 where the Bible says, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And so I was preaching and I looked up how to say exceedingly abundant above all that we could ask or think in Spanish. I wanted to relate. And so I know today that the, the way, at least and if you speak Spanish, don't correct me. It'll just really, really uh, make me feel bad about myself. But I said, God is able to do mucho mas abundantemente. You know, I was really getting into it. I was doing the big gestures, Dr. Getch. I mean, I was doing it. And uh, the, the church was all around. And so I kind of got comfortable. I felt like, you know, we were moving along in the sermon and, and the translator was working with me. And then one time, uh, the interpreter, he said a word that I just thought was hilarious. Like it sounded goofy. And so I, I mean, I'm fluent in Spanish because I know abundan demente. And so I reiterated his word. I thought the service went well. It ended well. Coming to work on Monday morning, Brother Franco, our Spanish pastor, he says, uh, preacher, I need you to come into my office. And I was like, how oh, are you, you know, going to tell me about the good report from yesterday? He said, preacher, you said a very bad word. I said, what? He said, no, you said like the worst word. Like, Don't speak Spanish anymore, preacher. <laughs> I, I relate to Peter because I find myself saying things out of turn, out of the way. But can I ask you with that sort of concept of Peter in our mind, why did he not ask the question? He's there. He has all access to Jesus just like John does. But for some reason, John becomes Peter's mediator. John, why don't you ask him who it is that's going to deny? I think what we see here is the principle of nearness brings us to a place of authority with God. We have power with him. Peter could have asked, he didn't feel qualified. Can I just tell you this morning, there will come times in your life where you're gonna need power with God. Like when you start to pray, you need him to hear and you need him to respond. I remember when my wife and I were having our first daughter she went into labor at 20 weeks. I remember going into the hospital room as they're delivering my first child. I'll never forget what the doctor said. He said, it is inevitable your child will die. Every time I hear the word inevitable now, I think of that moment. It is inevitable. At that moment, you need power with God. I remember... My second daughter was born. They did some blood tests. They do a lot of tests right after they're born. I remember the doctor came in. They said, your, doctor, your daughter's tests are irregular and we think she has a rare genetic disorder. We're going to have to start a file for her in Austin. At that moment, you need power with God. And by the way, you notice how I haven't even mentioned ministry stuff yet? That's just real life. That's whether you're going into secular work or whether you're going into ministry work. But if you're going into the ministry, you're going to find yourself in dire need of God's power. 
I'll never forget, I got the phone call from a family in our church. We were praying for them. We we're excited they were going to have a new baby. And, and uh, it was uh, the 40th week. It was time for delivery. They went into the hospital. We were all rejoicing with them, praying with them. That baby was born. The doctor pulled the baby from the mother. The baby took one breath and died. They called me. I need you to come, preacher. I walked into that hospital room not knowing what I'd see, but when I walked in, I saw a father and a mother holding their lifeless baby, weeping over it. What do we do, preacher? I don't know. But I, at this moment, I realize how empty I am, Dr. Getch. I realize I don't have the answers, and so I need to be near to God so that I can bring this family to God. And oftentimes as a pastor, as a minister, a youth pastor, kids will come to you, adults will come to you and they'll say, preacher, I have a prodigal in my life. My son's gone off the rails. I need him to come back to the Lord. They are depending on your nearness to God. When they say, preacher, I've been praying for my father. He's 92. He's on his deathbed. He needs to be saved. They are relying that you have some access to the throne room. When that moment comes, will you have a privilege with God that says, will you go to God on my behalf for me? Like Peter comes to John, why don't you ask him for me? We see not only the practice of nearness and the privilege of nearness, we see thirdly the product of nearness. Verse 21 foretells of a denier and a betrayer. Verse 26 and 30 goes into the details. We, of course, know it's Judas Iscariot. What the other gospels seem to indicate is that he had already been in cahoots in one degree or another with the chief priests, and he's been speaking to them about opportunities to betray the Lord. Jesus, of course, knew this, and he foretells this moment, and he tells Judas, what you do, go do quickly. It's time. The, the moment's come for you to finalize what you've been working on. What's hard for us to imagine is all the other disciples in one way or another also were what the Bible uses, the word offended of the Lord. Of the nine remaining disciples, we don't know where they were at the time of Calvary. We don't see them anywhere. Bartholomew, Philip. Matthew, we, we don't know where they were. We know that Peter followed afar off, but only to the place where he was comfortable until the water got a little too hot. So then he denied the Lord. But yet the Bible indicates to us that there was one of the disciples at the foot of the cross. It was this same disciple who had spent time near to the bosom of Christ. I don't think it's incoincidental that the very same man who spent time resting on Jesus' bosom is also the man that had enough faith to stand nearest to him at his crucifixion. You see, your nearness to God will determine your faithfulness to God. Where do you see yourself in 30 years? Where do you see yourself in 30 years? 
Men, if you're trying to become a pastor, I hope you're already envisioning that congregation, those people that you're loving. I hope you're already imagining that Friday night and Saturday night leading up to Sunday as you pray and you prepare over that sermon that you're going to preach, knowing that there's going to be people there that need the gospel. I hope you're envisioning that, but I guarantee you when I ask that question, not one of us is is envisioning the fact that there will be betrayers among us. Not one of us is saying, I see myself in 30 years not even attending church. I see myself in 30 years being a part of a false doctrine. I see myself in 30 years being so bitter towards West Coast, being so bitter towards Lancaster Baptist College, as if they did me a disservice in loving me while I was there. I I, I guess you don't see yourself there, but can I just tell you, students that I went to school with are there. I met a man at Cabela's a year after I graduated. He was an upperclassman after, while while I was just still an underclassman. I went there and I saw him. I was excited because, you know, we don't see a lot of the people I went to college with often in Texas. And so I saw him. I went over to him, greeted him, saw him and his family. And he began to tell me about how he had really discovered the truth. And his pastor had taught them that True believers, if they're not faithful to the Lord, will spend the millennial reign in hell suffering for their unfaithfulness to God. You know, that man sitting in your seat had no intention of being where he was. So how do we prevent from getting there? Can I just tell you, I think it's this. Stay desperately and hopelessly in love with Jesus Christ. If he is the chief pursuit of your life, then no man's going to distract you because you're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. He is the goal of it all. He is the end of it all. So as we seek to know him more, we are complete in him. Dear college student, I stopped by to say, and I prayed over the hundred different messages that I thought the Lord might lead me to preach. I want you to desire nearness with Christ more than anything. Don't desire to be a good preacher. Desire to know the one who will give you what you need to preach. Don't desire to pastor a great ministry. Desire to know the one who is the chief cornerstone of every ministry. He is the end of it all. So love him now like you long to love him then.